Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. It's a blessing to be with you in the house of the Lord on the Sabbath day. Am I on with my pack here? Or shall I stay put here for now? They are giving me the thumbs up. It is beautiful this morning. The sun is shining. You're thinking it's very cold this morning, though, aren't you? You know, we're from Michigan, so uh, we, we, don't, we don't think this is very cold. Although, I admit we've been in Florida ministering at various churches there, so uh, we have gotten a little spoiled with very warm weather. So this did feel cold to us this morning as well. But it's such a blessing, as I mentioned, to be with you, especially with your AV team. See, we were very busy this morning. I've never been so last minute in having the PowerPoint on the computer ready to be projected, and it was like a miracle moment when it was like, praise the Lord, it worked. Sometimes the devil does try to mess with the technology. It's one of those easy avenues for whatever reason where you see that happening, and um, it, it, I, I, I can count several technological miracles at churches I've been to, verifiable miracles. Um, we had a miracle this week, too, just as a family. We're traveling around in our RV. We do this in the winter, leave Michigan, come south, and our, uh, our generator was not working this week. And... Um, it, it would it, it would start up and then and then and then fail and it was like it, it could start but then it wouldn't stay running and a generator is important for those who don't do the RV thing because it charges the batteries and if you're not plugged in you don't have your batteries charged you lose all your electricity in the RV so we um, failed to run the generator enough times and for long enough that our batteries drained way down and we tried to start that generator and we were thinking it has not been starting uh, very uh, consistently. I just hope it starts. So we, we got our backup charger, um, battery boost uh, unit to, to get the batteries charged and get that generator started. And it would, we'd hit the button to get it to, and it would it, three or four times of that. And this thing's going to run out of power too now. So we put those clamps back on there. Give it one more try. One of my children said, we should pray. Yeah, dad. Um, we prayed. The next one turned the generator on and it started. It started and stayed started. So that was kind of a fun miracle. We were driving down the road just last night. We put a CD on and I love to listen to music. And ever since I was a young person, and back then it was worldly music, sadly, but I've always loved to just sing at the top of my lungs when I'm driving. Does anybody else like to do that with good, holy, sacred music? And um, sad thing, you know, you could tell our RV is getting a little old. Um, one of the two speakers up in the, in the cab has gone bad and wiring and it kind of disconnected and stopped playing. So you know how music kind of has two channels some of the time and the music isn't right if you don't have both speakers playing. So it's just kind of the quality of the music went down. We make the best of it. But that's been for many months. Well, this song came on. Do you know the song? Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And we were just delighting in that song. And right as that opening line came, the other speaker started. And it was like, you can hear the brush of angels' wings, and you know there are supernatural things happening in the little things, you know? It's not little to somebody who loves music and praising God. So anyway, we've seen miracles this morning. I uh, like to share God's glory. When we talk about media, people think we're going to just talk about media today. But really, isn't everything we do about Jesus? I'm going to grab my Bible and my uh, device here. Everything, he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Isn't that what it says in the book of Acts? And so really this is not a seminar about media today. Yes, it is in a way. We're going to talk a lot about it. But it's for the reason of glorifying God in everything that we do, including our media choices, and asking for God's will to speak into our lives on our media choices. So let's not get diverted from the 
Christ-centered everything in our lives. And so that's why we have a media seminar. That's why we delight in talking about the principles of religious freedom. As Pastor Thurman mentioned there, I was just giving a lecture to one of my (laughs) sons yesterday while we were sitting in the cab together. Occasionally a kid gets to come sit up front with dad while the family's back in the coach. And for some reason I got on to why religious liberty? Is it merely for the temporal enjoyment of worshiping freely and and, and living lives of, of prosperity and peace and having a society of order and proper civil government? Uh, those things are good, but there's a bigger context in which religious liberty uh, takes place, and that is called The Great Controversy. If you've never read the book by that name, The Great Controversy, we've given away many dozens of them on this trip. We like to do that as we're on the road, share the truth, and that book shows you the real conflict that's been going on all down the ages. This is the big meta-narrative, if you will. It's the ultimate story of the stories of history. And it shows that God's character is that of love. It's the first three words in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, which begins a series of five books called the Conflict of the Ages series, the last of which is the Great Controversy. And do you know what the last three words in the Great Controversy are? God is love. It's about God's character being a God of freedom in a universe of free will where one angel, Lucifer, chose with his free will to invent a new concept, selfishness, evil, rebellion. And a God of free will had to, in keeping with his character of love, allow that freedom and allow that rebellion to take place to manifest its fruits of darkness, wickedness, pain, suffering, and evil. And then all who are in the onlooking universe on this earth as a witness to angels as well as to men will conclude after the outplaying of that rebellion, that was bad, we never want to do that again. And then all are convinced in their mind that we never want to go back there and we have peace and harmony in the universe for the ceaseless ages of eternity in the future. And that's why the last sentence in the great controversy is there is one pulse of harmony that beats throughout the universe through the rest of eternity. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but, and that is that God is love. And we worship and adore him out of the free choice and the individual thinking capacity he's given to us to choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. So that's why I love the principle of religious liberty. In fact, I didn't know that was why I loved it until I came into these truths that I'm sharing right now. It was like, wow, that's the big picture that I never grasped as a young student of history and government and economics. I understood human suffering. I understood the dangers of authoritarian overreach throughout history. And just as a Christian who cared about humanity, you you want to enter into that dialogue and advocate for those things that will really bring blessing to our fellow man. It's a humanitarian impulse that every Christian has. That and the big picture stuff about God's glory and God's name and wrapping up this terrible experiment in rebellion that has begun. So I told you we could be here all night if we follow the rabbit trails, but uh, I thank you for the introduction, Pastor Thurman. I appreciate the ability to speak freely about liberty in a time of censorship and repression um, that we never thought we would see in such a short period of time, although students of prophecy know that these things can come with blinding force, and the final events will be rapid ones. And so we should have seen this coming. You know, a couple of years ago, we saw half the world under a state of house arrest. Literally, that's what the legal terminology would be for these uh, shutdown orders that were given throughout most of the world. And um, that happened so quickly that we just went, wow, that uh, we didn't see that that, that that sort of thing could transpire in such a short period of time and take so much of the world unawares with so many people moving forward with uh, accepting that as, as the new normal. That was the phrase that became very common at that time. And so I guess what that means and meant for me at the time and still has for the last two years is that we've got to always be ready because the final events of Bible prophecy happen and we want our spiritual preparation to be, tra- to be in place prior to that final phase of earth's history where people are sealed. You know about the mark of the beast and the seal of God that are coming. And the sealing time is right now, actually. And it's very much in that principle of that book that you're studying for prayer meeting. 
that I recommend. In fact, we're going to end the sermon on that idea of the seal of God in the forehead. Well, this is called media on the brain, isn't it? You see, God is doing something in us in these last days. But before we begin, uh, I, I always want to open with prayer, but to give us a sense of our deep need for prayer, I want to share a quote from you, uh, for you, uh, with you from the, uh, the founder of the neuromarketing department at Apple. Um, he said, what happens is you have a very specific relationship with your iPhone. What we learned from a very recent study we did, so they studied the brains of people who are using their iPhones, and they're trying to figure out how do we do our marketing department better, neuromarketing, they called it. We did a study that there were actually two activations happening for people who are in love with their iPhones. Did you hear what I said? In love. Because we actually realized from the study that the same area of the brain that is activated when you are in love with someone is activated when you are in love with your iPhone. Now, my family is here. I love my family, right? We use that word in the context of, you know, Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, this word love means something, but they're finding literally in the brain circuitry of somebody who is so enamored with, literally, (laughs) their phone, that their circuitry for their brain, for I love my wife, I love my child, is firing off when we're using our phone. Is that a little weird to anybody else? I mean, that kind of crosses the line, right? Uh, we, we like technology. I like that we can broadcast this on Zoom. That's great. I like that our ministry is going to 3ABN next week, literally, uh, going back to record a couple of sessions of the digital disconnect, which is kind of media on the brain with a different name. But... Um, Our satellite media outlets are great, right? Was that amazing facts earlier this year? Praise God, last year. These are, media is a tool, right? Media can be used, I'm saying something you all know, for God's glory and for good. And so it's okay, we can can like, like media, but when we cross the line into a literal love relationship, that is a a strange phenomenon that I, I thought I'd share with you before we open with prayer because we go, okay, I might be in love with my media. I'm gonna need God, need God to speak to me on this. And, and George Barna pointed out, we might be addicted to our media. In fact, the majority of Americans, I spoke with George Barna about this and he said, well, look at my data here. It is the majority of Americans actually qualify for a media addiction. And he used the same seven question survey that the Psychiatric Association of America uses to diagnose drug addictions, alcohol addictions, other addictions. And they just applied that to media. And he said, it's the most widespread and serious addiction in America today, media addiction. So having said that, we go, okay, well, this isn't just a seminar necessarily for that cousin of mine, the brother, the the son, or whatever. All of us have to ask, and re-ask and re-evaluate our own media use and how God would speak to us in that way today. So that's why we open with prayer to, to ask for the Lord's will to be done. Would you bow your heads with me as we begin? Father in heaven, we just want to surrender our own thoughts and preferences and a speaker's thoughts and any of our opinions unto the almighty God who knows us better than we know ourselves. We trust you. We know you have our best interests in mind, and we just ask for your wisdom now as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you familiar with Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Romans 12, verse 2 says that we should not be conformed, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our, do you know the next word? You know the scripture, don't you? It says... And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that excellent, good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not conformed, but transformed. This afternoon we have a session entitled, Conformed to the Counterfeit Reality. It's all about an expose of really what's going on with Hollywood, with the mainstream media, with the news media, with the advertising industry, to manipulate what they have called for a century the group mind. You will not want to miss that afternoon session. Much has been said recently about this concept of mass formation. This is something that I've been discussing in Media on the Brain over the last 10 years. And it thrills my soul to see people awakening to the fact 
that there are agencies, a power elite, if you will, utilizing media and utilizing the worldly schooling systems of our age to shape and form mass formation, or we could say conform, the group mind. Um, the, the term being thrown around these days, mass formation psychosis, is emphasizing that it's not just forming the group mind in some benign way, it's turning it into a condition of the mind where truth is rejected and falsehood is accepted as truth. The Bible calls that deception. We know there are times coming where the whole world will wonder after the beast. So I won't be talking much about conformed this morning. This morning is about transformed by the renewing of our minds. We'll look at some of the trends in culture and we'll see what's going on with the media. But we're gonna look at the mind transformed. But the afternoon session Conform to the counterfeit reality on the media. The evening session, you know, how, you know the schedule of the day? We have lunch, then we have the afternoon session. We get a little break in there with a short documentary after which I, I share some final thoughts in how to escape the pleasure trap. It's the victory plan. It's understanding addiction, how the dopamine circuitry in our brain works with the reward circuit and pleasure and how God is a God of pleasure and how Satan is not better at pleasure than God is. And in that one, I actually like to sneak a little bit in about education. Uh, it's, I love seeing a lot of families here. Uh, the sound of, a, of, of babies is just, that, isn't that music to your ears in the church of God? Except not at home in the middle of the night, not at 2 a.m. That's not music to the ears. But I, uh, the, the worldly schooling uh, system of our, of our time birthed out of the industrial era. I'm gonna give you some of that history and actually dating back to the Jesuit order and the philosophy and mindset of that style of schooling is 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 actually working with media in that concept of mass formation. So just a little teaser for the afternoon and evening messages that when, when you hear about mass formation in our, in our time, what they're missing is the priming that has taken place for generations and for the entirety of the life of people living now. There is a priming phase. I had to, in 20 minutes in Phoenix, I don't know how many of you follow this Liberty and Health Alliance, we had this event in Phoenix, and they're like, you have two like TED Talk style messages, 20 minutes each. I'm like, 20 minutes? I've never spoken for just 20 minutes. I'm a teacher, you know, I I can go all week with my students on one topic if we want, and I get to speak all day at churches, 20 minutes. So they said, well, you got 20 minutes, and you talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I said, well, you know, what people don't, think about and aren't realizing is how we've been primed for this mass formation event. And that is media and worldly schooling. If we don't understand that, then we'll keep putting into our minds the, 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 the forming and the manipulation that is setting us up and our children up for future deceptions. I mean, what we've witnessed recently isn't, isn't the final. It's, it's, a, it's a trial balloon. It's a dress rehearsal. There are much more, even substantive things coming. So enough said on that. I want to share with you some of the, uh, at the outset here, just some facts and figures about media. This one kind of made me sit up and take notice. Did you know that Nielsen Media calculated the average American consumed 666 minutes of media per day in 2018? Uh, that's, that's not a fulfillment of prophecy. You know that is a biblically significant number, so I just thought that was kind of interesting. It's also a very large number and kind of ominous at that. But um, kids aged two to five now spend more than 32 hours a week on average in front of a TV screen. Between the ages of eight and 18, we're up to five hours a day on TV and movies, two and a half hours listening to music. And these numbers have not budged with the uh, you know, onslaught of more internet use, more social media, more digital devices, mobile devices. Those those TV and worldly music and video games, video games are actually up in the last 10 years, but the average young person racks up 10,000 hours of video gaming by the age of 21. Five million gamers in the United States are spending more than 40 hours a week playing video games. I mean, think about the impact that a young person can have who has that much in initiative and focus to do something like that for 40 hours a week if we applied that elsewhere in a meaningful context using the God-given gifts and the individuality that he has given to you to serve him and the counterfeit reality concept. We're gonna talk this evening about how Satan could never create a physical world. He wanted to be in the position of God but he couldn't be a creator, so he can't be God. It's silly, it's a non-starter from the beginning. But maybe he can create a virtual counterfeit reality. Think about that. But how about this? You know the average, um, 
genius or the best person in their field or the best person at their craft. They, they say that they have spent 10,000 hours on average to achieve that level of being at the apex of their particular skill. 10,000 hours is what the, what the average young person is spending, wasting on video games. Um, total screen time for the average American child is over 53 hours per week. 96.6% of toddlers and preschoolers are using mobile devices. Contrary to the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics, they have even said zero screen time for children under two. We recommend completely withholding screen time for these babies and toddlers. But then they looked at parents who are putting their, their preschool age kids with devices and they wanna see how much parent-child interaction is happening during those times of childhood media use. And they found zero. Uh, for the majority of parents, zero. Zero interaction at all between parent and child during those times of early childhood media use. It was a very alarming finding. Um, teens today now consume nine hours of entertainment media per day. That's entertainment and social media per day, in addition to all of the screen time needed now for academic purposes. So that becomes a 24-7 condition. Parents, nearly eight hours per day. That's an important one because I often get invitations to come speak to our youth. And I think, well, you know, they're not the only ones that need this message. I need this message. We all need to reevaluate our screen time use, right? Nearly eight hours per day for parents on uh, entertainment and social media. And they're spending twice as much time just watching Netflix than all quality time with their children combined. So this is really catastrophic for the family. The average child will spend more time watching TV by the age of six than he will spend in conversation with his father in his entire life. That is a tragic reality of the breakdown of the family, which is part of Satan's agenda in this degenerate age. Um, some, some physiological things kind of got my attention. I'm going to give you a little bit of tidbit from the sequel to Media on the Brain that we recorded in 2019 called The Media Mind. Um, by the way, we'll have DVDs back there after sundown. So everything we're not getting to in Media on the Brain, all the Media Mind stuff, the true education stuff, uh, Second Beast Rising, COVID dystopia, all of that is going to be available after sundown. But um, some German friends of mine said, you know, we've got a name for it. It's called Phono Sapien in German. And I thought, what does that mean? Well, they, they heard me talking about how the evolutionists apparently have to update their chart because... With our posture like this, we are literally moving our head forward and reshaping our spine with the muscles adjusting to how many hours we are doing that. Now, of course, God made man upright. We did not evolve from monkeys. But those who subscribe to that erroneous theory will have to update their chart, and they call it phono sapien. There are physiological effects, literally, from excessive media use. When you're hunched down and crunched down, you have or uh, digestive organs, respiratory organs that are not functioning as they should, as God designed us to. Um, God made man upright. In fact, you gain not only physiological benefits, but mental benefits. You gain moral benefits. You gain greater courage and self-reliance and self-possession and, and all these things that are in the study, and I'm kind of quoting from child guidance at the same time, but that's in the media mind, all the research on that. The benefits just of good posture. I mean, we could spend just a few minutes on that, but how about the weird developments? Like people walking into oncoming traffic on their phones. I'm not making this up. They had to put the street lights instead of up at eye level down at curb level because so many people are oblivious to the fact that that's the curb and there's a bus coming at them at 40 miles an hour so they said Let, let's just put that down there so then they'll be done. oh okay because we live kind of down here now don't we this is the new place we live instead of being aware and awake to God's reality all around us you know the average person touches taps and swipes their device 2,617 times per day that's a lot of touches, taps, and swipes. Um, if you add that all up for, for 365 days, then that's almost a million times that we are touching that. I don't know if we're touching real things like pets and children and wood and nails and plants and soil. And Are we touching the actual three-dimensional non-virtual world that many times? I'm not sure, but they did decide uh, with the traffic issues, uh, the pedestrians, to put a, a, a giant pad on the lamppost in Austria. Our government said, let's do a $172,000 grant to get the phones to be able to notify you that you are approaching the street so that you don't walk into the street. Because my phone needs to now tell me. I mean, that one kind of made me laugh because that was one of the first things you learned as, a, learned as a kid, right? When you're five, when you come to the street, stop, look, and listen. 
But now we have to have our phone do our thinking for us because we start at an early age. This one is tragic. This one is sad. This one makes me want to weep. It's for newborns. This is not healthy. I mean, all the research on childhood media use is coming in that this is not okay. Um, in France, they actually made it illegal to add on the regulatory agencies. Regulatory law in France has said no broadcasting of television aimed at children under three on the public airwaves. Uh, but here we have these things and the iPoddy. This is just, come on now. We need to learn how to be human again. <laughs> how to be human again. That's what a name of one of the media mind sessions. But you say, well, okay, how, how do we be human again? Well, one thing is we can just do mealtime together. It talks about that in Psalm 128, verse 3. It says, the children will rise up like olive plants round about our tables. Did you ever notice that in Psalm 128? The Bible doesn't say a lot about mealtime, but that's a good tradition, a good thing to do. The Bible mentions it there in Deuteronomy 6. It kind of just says, do life together as a family. Talk about God's word. As you rise up, as you lie down, there's morning and evening worship. As you walk by the way, as you sit in your house, we can speak of the things of God, bond together, and do life together. Walking, rising up, lying down, sitting, that's everything, isn't it? And it's interesting it mentions sitting. Aren't you sitting at morning and evening worship already? Well, sitting at mealtime also, yeah, like Psalm 128. Steve Jobs had mealtime together in his home. And interestingly, his kids didn't use the devices. He was asked by a New York Times journalist, Tell us about what your kids think of the iPad that's about to hit the store shelves. And he said, well, my kids haven't used one. <laughs> and the journalist was shocked because he couldn't believe that the Jobs kids wouldn't be using these devices. But they sure weren't. And I, there's a whole lot more to talk about in terms of the, the Silicon Valley tech gurus, if you will. The wizards of digital pharmacia. They are the ones that design the apps that get us hooked. And you know, they are some of the most strict people you will find and I've got all the quotes and data in the media mind on what's really going on what kind of schools they put their kids in the kind of uh, arrangements they have with their nannies and daycare providers and that their kids are tech free largely until middle school or high school uh, it's amazing how they're doing things so drastically different than the rest of us because the rest of us we've got three quarters of our children spending less time outdoors than prison inmates spend outdoors at that point, it's like, man, have we made for ourselves a virtual prison here for ourselves and our children? They did another study in the UK where they asked children about their experiences of climbing trees. I think if I asked for a show of hands for everybody age 11 or older, have you climbed a tree before? Everybody would be like, of course, at least once I climbed a tree. Um, the majority of kids age 11 and older today have never climbed a tree before. Did you know that? The majority have never once climbed a tree. I don't think I knew a kid when I was 12 who had, or 11 who had never climbed a tree. That, that was a shocking thing to me to see children are losing. It was called the disappearance of childhood. Um, uh, the disappearance of childhood uh, 40 years ago. And that sounded kind of hyperbole, but it very much was the case. We're called the most socially connected generation though. Come on, all those the million touches and taps and swipes. I'm, I'm connecting with people. I'm connecting on social media. Well, is it social? Because if it's so social, then why are we the loneliest generation? The more social media we have, the more lonely we get. We have a whole segment in the media mind called anti-social media. And that's not to say it's an inherent evil for everybody at all ages, at all times, and for all purposes, and all frequency of use, and, you know, is it following you and notifying you? Are you in control? I mean, there's, there's a lot of discussion to be had in that social media concept. I will tell you that the CEO of Apple said he doesn't want his teenage relatives on there at all. Uh, that's um, Tim Cook. He said he'd, he'd like to see zero social media for teenagers. I thought that was interesting, but um, the socially connected generation, as Zuckerberg bragged about, you know, we're Everybody's closer together, more socially connected than ever. Then it's a loneliness epidemic. And then they take you off social media for seven days in certain studies. And they find loneliness drops in seven days. Loneliness drops 36%. Depression drops 33%. So anyway, it, <laughs> this is one that I couldn't believe was, was happening. We're so socially fulfilled that there was a, before COVID, there was a cuddling with strangers craze. I am not making this up. 
where you would have apps that you could find people to hook up with, cafes where you go and, and, and have cuddling sessions. Professional cuddlers who hire out their services to cuddle with people. This was a real thing. But I guess here's the more COVID appropriate one. Lonely, this chair will hug you back. <laughs> I think we're struggling with our social, aren't we? So um, I forgot my notebooks. I have this slide in here to remind me to pass around the notebooks. I'll do that this afternoon, okay? Help me remember, if I'm talking to my family, help me remember my notebooks, okay? Uh, we'll, get, we'll get emails on there so you guys can be in touch with our, our ministries as we continue to journey together after this one day together. But I have the heading up there, what about Christian youth? You know, we've seen some trends in society. I came from the teaching background where I wanted to, I, I came into the truth, started teaching at the Adventist schools, and my students in the Adventist schools seemed to be kind of exposed to the same media as my students in the other schools, and I thought, boy, this is supposed to be like the, the final remnant movement of bringing the third angel's message, and we're set apart and holy, we're supposed to be coming apart and separate, saith the Lord, touch no unclean thing and I will receive you, the Bible says. So I, I thought, okay, well, how do I gauge how much media my students are consuming and uh, without it being like a witch hunt. Well, I did, what I did was a little like anonymous survey. I'm like, guys, would you, would you be willing to do an anonymous survey with me on the media consumption in our school and also our devotional time with the Lord? And it, yeah, sure, they're, they're, they're a good sport about it. And so, you know, don't put your name down, of course, but how, much, how many hours this last week did you engage in Hollywood entertainment or violent video games? And I limited it only to that because you could spend endless hours on foolish, worldly, nonsensical, waste of time things on the internet. I didn't even include that, okay? It's just Hollywood entertainment and violent video games. So the most obviously worldly things, the things that are most definitely and clearly out of bounds for the Christian. You know, we could debate how much screen time, of what types, at what ages, at what times of the day, for what lengths of time, how frequently we use it, whether it's a mobile device or a stationary device, how does it affect my personal uh, psyche and my own mental health makeup versus somebody else's who is a different individual, and how social media hits them. I mean, there's a lot of discussion on a lot of things that we get into in the media uh, mind. But media on the brain is more just dealing with this question of worldly media. And so I asked them just on that, and here were the results. For every one hour that they were spending on spiritual pursuits, they were 25 hours in the world. And I was shocked by that. It was um, four hours versus 10 minutes per day. Four hours per day versus 10 minutes per day. And I wanted to give them an analogy that would help them understand how toxic this is for our spirituality, how detrimental this is for our walk with the Lord to be consuming such spiritually junk food, right? So the, the analogy is food. That's the standard American diet, right? The sad diet. And it is a sad looking diet because you're like, yeah, that's not really food. That's kind of counterfeit food. It, it, it tricks the taste buds into thinking that it is food, but it is not uh, nutrients. It is not uh, whole plant foods where we get our nutrients from. And so the analogy came to mind, okay, let's see how much the average American consumes of that kind of food versus healthy whole plant foods, okay? So let's take whole plant foods versus everything else and see what the ratio is. You know what the ratio was? Exactly 25 to 1. It was the same ratio as their media diet, and it was the perfect description of how that diet is killing us physically. We know that. How much is our media diet killing us spiritually? By the way, talking about rabbit trails, did you know that the sad diet literally actually does make you more sad? It's a good name for it. Like, I mean sad like your feelings. It makes you more depressed. Have you ever come off of that kind of diet and eaten a healthy way and you're like, wow, clarity of thought, like brain fog is gone, high energy, mood lifted, less irritability, less impulsiveness, stronger spiritual connection. And, and you might say, well, are you saved by what you eat? No, of course not. We're saved by the merits and blood of Jesus Christ alone and his righteousness. But can I live a more abundant life with him? and exercise that living faith and choose him this day whom I shall serve if I am living the eight laws of health? What if I'm short on sleep and I've been eating garbage? 
you know, and I, I haven't been outside and I'm, I'm dehydrated. You think I, I'm gonna face the battle against self and temptation as well in that condition? No. So it's a sad diet. They did a study. If you've never had Chad and Fadia Cruiser here, by the way, my good buddy Chad, you gotta have him as a seminar speaker. He, he, he does a lot on health right now and on diet. And one thing I picked up from him was they did a study that for every additional serving of fruits and vegetables that you add to your daily diet, you get a measurable boost of happiness. Isn't that wonderful? God's diet makes you more happy. And the research is proving that. They measured it up to eight additional servings of fruits and vegetables. You add just one serving of fruits and vegetables to your diet and you become more happy, noticeably. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I bet you it would have gone up higher than eight. They just stopped at eight. Does God know how to give pleasure? Come to how to escape the pleasure trap this evening. That's important. That was our scripture we read earlier. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The frontal lobe is where you have your spirituality, morality, the exercise of the will, reason and conscience, sound judgment and decision-making, prayer and worship, discerning spiritual truths, empathy, altruism. That's love and care for other people. The Bible talks about the frontal lobe functions when it says that we should reason together, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, that loving our neighbor, doing good for our fellow man, and sharing the gospel to win souls unto the kingdom. That is a frontal lobe function of altruism. There's another area of the brain, though, that is kind of the competitor to the frontal lobe. It's called the limbic system. The evolutionists call it the lizard brain. We know that we did not evolve from lizards, but it is the lower nature, the base passions, the fight-or-flight mechanism, the lusts of the flesh that are housed there in the limbic system. So your limbic system is in control when you're dominated by fear, stress, lust, impulses, worry, anxiety, anger, irritability, negativity, and aggression. Nobody wants more of that. We want more of that frontal lobe, don't we? Well, the Bible talks about the limbic system also. Their God is their stomach, the desires of the flesh, the carnal mind. Those are all limbic system functions in the brain. Now you're wondering, okay, why, why the, the brain science lesson there? What does this have to do with media? You probably guessed it. You sit down to watch theatrical entertainment, you watch a Hollywood movie or TV show, you know what happens to the frontal lobe within minutes of watching that entertainment? It's like somebody comes and takes a switch and turns it off. And then simultaneously, the theatrical style television is designed to produce a limbic system impulse of some kind. Whether the show or the movie is trying to get you into the feeling of, of anger or fear or aggression or lust or sadness, they get you the musical elements, the dramatic elements just right, and you're in that state, that limbic state with the frontal lobe turned off. You're in a state of amusement, which means something interesting, by the way. In the short documentary this afternoon, they will explain what that word amusement means. If you know your etymology, you probably already figured it out, but I'll leave you in suspense otherwise. Uh, but I will say this, the documentary also tells you something fascinating that I forgot to say in the introduction this morning. And when I talk about how media is a tool, it can be used for good. Um, do you know when the world's first media device was invented? The world's first electronic media device. You might say the printing press. That's a medium, you know, the printed page. But okay, fast forward a few hundred years from Gutenberg to the first electronic media device. I'm gonna leave you in suspense for the afternoon. I will give you a hint. It's a prophetic year. It's a year that was alluded to and foreshadowed and described in prophecy. So you'll see the tension over this media issue, the great controversy over this media use issue. There will be long-term effects. When you habitually exercise the limbic system, enhance the limbic system through our entertainment use and turn off the frontal lobe, well, what are we doing? We're sowing to the flesh and then we will reap from the flesh corruption. But the opposite is true. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We can sow to the spirit, sow to the spirit and then we will reap eternal life. Let me use an analogy. You exercise the limbic system. You go on a workout program with one arm and just one arm. You're like hardcore arm workout, just one arm. The other one is put in a sling for hours a day, every day, and you do nothing with it. What's gonna happen over time? 
well, this one's going to become atrophied and useless and you just won't really use it much. You're going to do everything with that arm because it's the only competent thing you have left. Same thing with our brain circuits. We widen and strengthen the circuitry that we use. So we will either be conformed or transformed. It's one or the other. We, there's no set stasis. There's no, uh, there's no neutrality here when it comes to our growth in Christ or our conforming to this world. It's kind of like a plant. You ever grown plants? Have you ever noticed a thriving and healthy plant that does not grow? No, a plant is either growing or it is dying. One or the other. And the beauty of God's truth is that he can give us that frontal lobe strength and that victory. But the video games do the same thing that the Hollywood entertainment I mentioned a minute ago. They actually looked at one week of playing violent video games for just 10 hours only. And they measured brain activity of the young men who started playing during that week. They measured brain activity before the week began and after the week was over. And they observed a reduction in frontal lobe in just one week of playing these video games for only 10 hours. And you might say, Scott, that sounds like a lot of hours, actually, 10 hours. Well, that's the moderate recommended amount, right? Now, you might say, well, it's, uh, it's, I'm the good guys, and it's not too graphic and violent. Or the stuff I'm watching from Hollywood is the G-rated and the quality material and you haven't mentioned the morality of it. You know, that's the interesting thing about the effect of this media. The devil's very sneaky because he wants to get Christians messed up too. So he says, well, let's just mess them up with the form of media itself. So then when they're making discerning choices about not exposing themselves with too, to too worldly a stuff will still affect their frontal lobe and enhance their limbic system and that will mess up their character even though they haven't been putting R-rated garbage and M-rated garbage into their, into their minds. Pretty tricky little business he's up to there because when you reduce your frontal lobe and enhance your limbic system, you are affecting your character. Now what about the morality? Um, the average Young person views 200,000 acts of violence by the age of 18. So we are struggling in this area as well. 6,588 beer commercials. My students would say to me, yeah, but Mr. Ritzema, we don't watch the commercials. Nobody watches the commercials anymore. Well, they put it in the show. They did not know what a product placement was. I'm like, guys, you realize they put alcohol product placements 316,000 times in just primetime television. So they're giving you a subliminal advertisement, a mention, a graphic. It happens all the time in entertainment television during the program, not during the commercials. Uh, between the ages of 8 and 18, 79,500 scenes of a sexual nature, 99% of which are immoral and not biblical in their message. Now, um, what did they discover when they studied monkeys and the brain? This was, this was interesting, because when it comes to these numbers, when I was a young person living in the world, living of the world, loving the world, and if I would have had a chapel speaker come in, which I did, they would say, you know, worldly media is not healthy for the Christian. You know, think about what you watch and what you listen to and stuff. I'd be like, well, I, I can watch what I want, listen to what I want, and it's not affecting me, and here's my proof, because I'm not going out and doing those things. Now, a student of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, would already know the fallacy of that line of reasoning, that you're not going out and doing them, but does that mean it's not affecting your character? You follow me on that? Well, uh, before I get to Matthew 5, what they studied here, the scientists even understand this, they had a monkey who was being monitored and while he did various activities, one of the things he did was, eating, was eat peanuts. So he's there eating the peanuts and they learn what goes on in his brain while he eats the peanuts. Then they take the break, take a break and they put the peanuts over here and now the scientist is eating the peanuts but the monkey is not eating anymore. He's just sitting there while they're on a break but he's watching somebody eat peanuts. So he's still sitting monitored and they notice on the brain scan, his brain, while watching the peanuts being eaten, is, is displaying some activity. And they say, it looks kind of familiar, this activity on the screen. Well, let's compare the monkey's brain while watching peanuts being eaten with the monkey's brain while eating peanuts. It was the exact same neurological signature. The same brain function for eating peanuts and watching peanuts. They called it mirror neurons. And they discovered whatever we see with our eyes is interpreted by the brain as if we are doing it ourselves, not merely seeing it. So I can't say I'm just watching. I'm just playing it. 
because it is affecting me as if I'm participating in it. In fact, watching it and being entertained by it, if it's immoral, that's addressed by Romans 1. It says, it's the, one of those lists of sins, you know, God-haters and murderers and all of these things. And then the last one, in the end of Romans 1, he, he, he saves the best for last. And then it's like those who approve of these things. So if I'm watching and entertained by it, I'm approving of it. I don't think it's actually something Jesus would be entertained by, right? That's simple. So is Matthew 5. What was it? I left you hanging earlier. Did Jesus say... All that matters is whether you go out and commit the physical act of murder or adultery. Is that what he said in Matthew 5? He said, if you're lusting after somebody in your heart, if you're hating somebody in your heart, you're stepping on the commandment against murder and against adultery. So he raised the standard. He raised the bar, didn't he? Which is contrary to, as a side note here, what some people think about Jesus is, He's kind of like this hippie, you know, version of like, hey man, you know what? We don't need to have such a high standard of righteousness. Just like, let's all be cool and nice. And well, actually, he raised the standard. He said it's not just about the physical act of murder and the physical act of adultery. It's what happens in the mind and in the heart. He said God's law, not one jot or tittle is put away. And I'll tell you something. When we read in Romans 12, verse 2, that we are being transformed. Does it say that we are merely being transformed by our outward behavior? No, it says we are being transformed and renewed of our mind. And think about that also in the context of the seal of God, which is put in the forehead. It's not put in the hand, is it? Now, our outward actions will follow and our behavior matters, but really, if we start and focus on our mind, then the behavior will just follow. The mark of the beast can be put in the hand or the forehead. But the seal of God only works when it's in the forehead. Isn't that interesting? And our behavior will be transformed as well, but that's not where we start. Speaking of a cart, you see the cart following the horse there. But this is for the purposes of illustrating a story about an Amish young man. He was uh, raised not watching any entertainment. He decided to rebel. He went away from the Amish community and watched a movie. True story, the first movie he ever watched was uh, an old western, which if you've seen old westerns, you know they're pretty tame by today's standards. They're not super shocking and violent, right? By today's standards. Now, if you've never watched them, though, you might be shocked by it. The Amish kid saw somebody shot in that film, and he was so horrified by it, he ran out of the house and threw up. And you might say, how is that possible? That's weird, you know? I wouldn't have that reaction. He's strange, is he strange? Or maybe we're the weird ones. You know what I mean? Maybe we're the frog in the pot where we like, uh, you know, eh, that's a little, that's only a little worldly. It's not that bad. And so we acclimate ourselves to that level of spiritual compromise. And we go, hey, it's comfortable. It's quite enjoyable. It's a warm pot. But then the pot heats up slowly over time, and you don't even notice the changes. The culture around you, if you're not in the word, if you're in the world, you don't even notice how degraded it's becoming. And that taps into also the deceptions and the mass formation stuff. But just even on a moral level, on what I accept as morally tolerable, uh, people become accepting these things because it's incrementally changing and they don't they don't notice. It's imperceptible because the changes are slow over time, although they seem to have increased in their frequency and intensity in these last days. But for many people, they end up as a frog in the pot that's going to boil. The Amish kid was thrown into the pot of already boiling water, and he jumped out. He said, you guys are crazy. That's not entertainment. I guess he was right. He was right about that. Now, have you read in Isaiah 33? This is a last day's issue. This is a present truth issue. What we watch what we listen to is a present truth issue in the last days. And in order to follow through that thought to the end, I have to tell you what it says in verse 14. In verse 14, a question is asked. And the question is, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? That's a pretty intense sounding question, isn't it? Now it begs the question, Okay, what is the consuming fire? Because the answer given in verse 15 is he who walketh righteously. Now, growing up, I didn't understand 
the nature of hell, fire, and all of that. And I would have been so puzzled by that. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? He who walketh righteously? I thought the wicked are put into the devouring fire where they live and dwell. Who among us shall dwell or live or survive in the presence of the devouring fire? It's not the wicked who live in the fire. Who gets eternal life and what is the fire? The fire is God. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. So who can survive in the presence of God? Moses couldn't even. Remember, he says, show me your glory. And God said, no one can see my face and live. But Jesus finishes that sentence and he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Show me your glory. No one can see God and live. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So there's one answer to the question posed in Isaiah. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? He who walketh righteously. And then a second answer. He who has a pure heart will see God. Now, the third one is given here, uh, is given uh, in, in Revelation, rather. In Revelation chapter 6, it's another question. The same question is being asked. And at the end of chapter 6, it's a super crazy scene that you're watching. You're seeing the sky recede as a scroll. As a scroll. Every mountain and island flees from its place. And the rich and the mighty men and every slave and every free man are running away from the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world who is coming on the clouds of heaven. This is the end of Revelation 6. They're running to, they're calling on the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb. Do you remember that scene? It's It's impressive. Now, the very last thing they say is, and who shall be able to stand? So it's the same question asked in Isaiah. Who's going to dwell? Who's going to stand? Who will make it? And the chapter ends there, so you kind of go, I guess it's a question that doesn't have an answer. It's a rhetorical question. No, no, no. Read on into chapter 7, and you'll see the answer to the question. There were no chapter breaks in the original Bible, so you read on into chapter 7, and you see the angel ascending from the east. And what does he have in his right hand? Do you remember? The seal of God to put on the foreheads of the minds of believers in the very last days of earth's history. So he's answering the question, who shall be able to stand? He who walketh righteously, he who has a pure heart, and he who receives the seal of God. Now, I want to be very clear about something that this prayer meeting book will be very clear about in terms of the righteousness of Christ. It is not in us. It is not of us. And it is not from us. It is all in and of and from Jesus Christ and his merits alone that we walk righteously and have a pure heart and receive the seal of God. These are endowments of heaven. So when you hear walk righteously, you're like, oh, I'm focused on my works and on my walk. Yes, we need to make good choices, but we can only make those good choices through the grace that Jesus provides that we have faith in. So if we lose faith, we lose the battle. Everything is about that faith in Jesus Christ, and that's how we will have his righteousness, the pure heart or the transformed and renewed mind, if you will, and the seal of God transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, you want the answer to this. What does Isaiah say about these three about this is really one thing. Who is saved in the last days? Who is given eternal life when the fire comes instead of running away and the elements are melting with fervent heat and the wicked are sadly going to perish as John 3.16 says. But who's going to stand in the consuming fire? Who will dwell with the everlasting burnings? We know it's those who have the seal of God because they have the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah gives a description of this group. And I started this by saying this media issue is a present truth issue. Who stands in the last days? He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. What we are entertained by, what we watch, what we listen to, what we enjoy and expose ourselves to and our children to will either conform or transform, one or the other. And here it says, those who are sealed in that great day will be those who have spurned the world and said, I do not want to behold those things. And they are saved not by what they're not beholding, but they are saved by whom they are beholding. You follow that? 
We're not saved by not watching bad things. We're saved by, instead of that, beholding Jesus Christ, because by beholding him, we are changed. By beholding, we become changed, remember? That's a a truism that you maybe all have grown up with. I, I didn't, but it's true in the Bible. It's true in science. And as we close, there is nothing more calculated to energize the mind and strengthen the intellect than the study of the word of God. That's transformed by the renewing of your mind talk. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties as the broad ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that is rarely seen in these times. It will be a rare entity. Now, uh, my wife and I uh, lived in California for five years before we had kids. And um, it's a fun story to tell, but I accidentally put this, the image up on the screen too early, so just pretend you didn't see that, okay? Um, it's about mountains. You guys have some, some nice ridges here as you head up into northern Georgia. Are you laughing because I called them ridges, not mountains? <laughs> hey, I'm from Michigan. We're very flat, and we just came from Florida where it's even flatter, so it's like peninsular living you know in the in the summer up in this peninsula and then Florida another peninsula and both are very flat and uh, we like mountains we really do and we like your Appalachians I'm taking one of my boys on a one-on-one trip to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park later this spring and um, it, it is nice here I was noticing this is just when they start like it was pretty flat you know coming out of Atlanta and then you see them and then we're here so this is a neat spot it's kind of the gateway to the ridges. So um, we, were, we were looking forward to the mountains of California. They told us, you're going to love teaching out here. We were teachers, you know, come teach at our school. You're going to love it here because it snows up on the mountains, but not down here. You know, you won't get buried in snow like you do in Michigan. You can go visit the snow. You can look at the snow. It'll be so beautiful. The mountains are so beautiful, they told us. And the mountains will seem so close, even though they're quite a distance off because they're so big and so beautiful. So we were excited. We said, Let's, we're driving into California. We're moving in our U-Haul truck, Southern California. We're now in the Inland Empire, and we're looking north to behold the beauty of the mountains that we were told would be so beautiful and so close. And we couldn't see them. I'm like, honey, there's no mountains. Oh, wait, there's a faint outline of the top of the mountains I see. It's peeking out above what is a bunch of smog and gray and brown nastiness and haze. And that's what they told us was super beautiful and super close. Ah, it was a letdown. It's June, right? So um, it didn't stop there, but at that time, we, were, we really were not that interested in talking about the mountains, looking at the mountains, telling others about how beautiful we think the mountains are. It was kind of eh with the mountains at that point. But two things would happen that would change the atmosphere dramatically, both involving the climate, both of which are very interesting biblical analogies. You tell me if you can figure them out. One of them was wind. You probably already figured it out, didn't you? The winds would blow in from the east, from the desert, the Santa Ana winds, and that would clear the air out. Another thing that would happen is the rain front would come through. That was what would make it the most beautiful because when it was raining down in the Inland Valley, it was snowing up on the mountains. And the next day, what would come out is the most beautiful, I'm like a thousand times more beautiful than these little pictures, but... It's something we had never seen. I had never seen, at least. And I'm running to the front window. I'm like, honey, come and look at this. This is the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. The mountains that they told us about. And they're like, they moved them 90% closer. They seem so close. And so, you know, this, the analogy here is God's presence is close. He is big. He is the beauty of holiness. And his closeness, though, is sometimes blocked by some stuff in between us and him some some mess but when the wind and when the rain come out and clear that out then what comes out the next day is the beauty of holiness and the presence of God and how good he truly is and then we literally wanted to write home about those mountains we would talk to him about others talk to the mountains with others talk to others about the mountains we would we would, uh, that'll happen three times today, max, okay? If it happens more than that, I quit. But uh, anyway, uh, the mountains, we, we, we wanted to look at them. We wanted to behold them more and more. So um, the analogy, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the latter rain, the former rain. The wind, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where he pleases. Do you remember that? 
Now, is the Holy Spirit the third person of the Godhead? I read that phrase in a wonderful book called The Desire of Ages. By the way, if you read The Desire of Ages and you read The Great Controversy, they are so biblically sound that um, it clears up any misunderstandings that one might have because of what people say out there and what people twist. And I heard, can I kind of just give you a little story? Uh, we, we were new in, in understanding prophecy and the present truth and being Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We had been Christians for some time, but these were like some new understandings. And um, we, we came into this church and we're studying those two books. And we didn't know about these little debates that sometimes happen among theologically minded people. I didn't know they existed, okay? And we just read those two books. And then people were like, so what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I'm like, well, it's clear. You know, God's word is clear on that. And, and you know, I read in a great controversy, read in the desire of ages, and I, I'm seeing this as, as clear as can be. Like, why is there a debate about that kind of thing? You know what I mean? Before I even knew that there were any differences of opinion among people who like to, you know, raise little objections and cavil over things and have disputes and arguments. I was like, no, this is already clear. So that was kind of freeing where you know the truth instead of having to get into that tension over it, which it's just, just a side story that was kind of a, an easy way in rather than having to dig into all of the controversies. But um, I will tell you that the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, Blows where he pleases. And God is love. We know that from 1 John 4, verse 8. And so the Holy Spirit will bring God's love to us. And God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, his long-suffering, his affirming us, his coming to us and saying, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Now, um, there's something I left off of that list, though, of what God's love is. And this was shocking to me when I was reading the great controversy and it said in the last days spiritualism dwells on love as the chief attribute of God's character and I said what God love is the chief attribute of God's character biblically spiritualism dwells on love as the chief attribute of God's character I'm on the edge of my seat let me hear the rest of the paragraph here it reduces that love so-called to a mere sentimentalism. And it does not uphold the law of God and the authority of God. You see what that, that's a counterfeit love, isn't it? Does the world talk, a big talk about love these days? I mean, it's like everything, love and not hate. And you're like, eh, what do you mean by that though? Are you a little suspicious sometimes when you hear that from certain sectors of the philosophical spectrum, if you will? Like, eh, what do you mean by that? Well, does it mean tolerating self-destructive things and calling that acceptable when it's called sin in the Bible and destructive to the, the child whom God loves? That's not love. Any parent who sees his child engaging in something that's going to destroy themselves, they, they, they break in with their authority firmly out of love and care for that child. So if you redo, remove authority and you remove law, you do not have love. In fact, we'll touch on that more this afternoon, the philosophy of that mindset as we're wrapping up here. But I just want to encourage you that when you ask for the Holy Spirit to come in and clear out it's that which is between us and God, it's like a child who asks his father for bread. And the father is not going to tell the child, here's a stone for your lunch. We're about to go have a delicious lunch. And nobody is going to be like, here, have a stone at the potluck and that's all that's there on the table. No. And how much more will your heavenly father, who loves you even more than an earthly father could imagine, you're going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. It's a prayer that is automatically answered. Lord, please send your Holy Spirit. Done. Jesus said it. He will give his Holy Spirit like a child who asks for bread from his father. So you're guaranteed to receive the love of God. Because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead and God is love. And that includes this last part. Those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. Have you read that verse? You know, do a study on love in the Bible. And then hone in especially on the emphasis in the last days. The, the message to the church of Laodicea. Us in the last days. Mentions the word love one time. 
as I'm sure you've picked up, I believe firmly that the character of God, the truth of God's character is present truth and is the last rays of merciful light that fall upon the earth before Christ's second coming. I mean, this is part and parcel of the third angel's message. The methods and character of God versus the methods and character of Satan in the mark of the beast seal of God crisis. The name of God being put in the forehead, that denotes character. And the one time the word love is mentioned in the message to the church of Laodicea, to Laodicea it emphasizes that that includes rebuking and chastening. Not only because we need it, but also because we need that peace reincorporated into the picture of what is God's love. Because without that peace, it's a counterfeit love. So it's a prayer you pray and you say, Lord, teach me thy ways, O Lord, and lead me in the straight path. And he will say, this needs to go from your life. I love you enough to say, this is not helping you in securing the presence of the Holy Spirit and the angels and securing eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a distraction and it needs to go. Bring this in instead. You'll find the joy that comes from it. You'll find that at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I open my hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is not trying to withhold from us. And we'll build on those themes throughout the day. But right now, as we close with a song, I want us to individually in our own walk with the Lord, in our prayers to him, ask him, Lord, please rebuke and chasten me where I need it today. Challenge me, stretch me, grow me, that I might come away from this day with choices about my media that will draw me closer to you. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.